Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm Peachy Keen. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, IATSE may be going on strike. What is IATSE? Uh, it's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, and that's the union that represents so-called below-the-line talent. Uh, everyone from grips to cinematographers, you know, if you if you work on a movie set, uh, you've got a ton of these IATSE folks running around making sure that the movie looks good, the actors look good, the director has his coffee, and everything else. Um, so they have voted to authorize a strike vote. They've not voted to strike. They've just authorized uh, uh, the ability to vote on a strike, which is uh, one of these fun union uh, bureaucratic things. Uh, why did they do this? A whole bunch of reasons, but here are the two big ones. So the first off is money. Everybody loves money. Uh, and the long and the short of the money situation is this. Many years ago, IATSE made a deal that allowed, uh, quote unquote, new media a break on things like residuals and other pay. Netflix and other streaming services were considered uh, at the time new media. But now Netflix is a service with annual revenue of around $25 billion. Uh, so the union understandably wants their proper share of the Buy. Uh, it makes no sense for folks to get paid less on a Netflix production than they do on a Universal or Warner Brothers production. They want their money. Um, but they're, they're still working super long hours on Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max productions, just as they do on Warner Brothers or Universal productions, right? Uh, and this is the crux of the second real contentious issue, working conditions. Uh, working conditions on movie and TV shows, on movies and TV shows, are notoriously brutal. There's long hours. Uh, there's few breaks. Early call times lead to very bad quality of life concerns. You're, you're talking, you're looking at like a 12-hour day being standard. 14 is more common, frankly, and 20 hours on set is not unheard of. Uh, so the big question then uh, is where the money comes from, because if you reduce the number of hours that folks can work uh, in a given day, you're going to have to spend a ton more money on production because this is how productions work. You spend more money uh, per day. It's essentially uh, a daily thing, not an hourly thing, though. This is also there's some contention about this, about wage theft and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and. Uh, the question is, where where where's the money going to come from, right? Uh, as the enter entertainment strategy guide noted in a recent edition of the Ankler newsletter, uh, streamers aren't, strictly speaking, profitable, which means you can't really take a cut of the profits, uh, which means that costs will get on passed on to the consumer. So, you know, this means maybe you're paying another dollar a month for Netflix or whatever. Um, or maybe we'll just see less stuff made overall. Alyssa, would that really be the worst thing in the world if there were simply fewer productions out there? Honestly, no. I mean, we, <laughs> um, and I speak to a certain extent as a critic on this. It, you know, it used to be possible for me to sit down and basically watch everything that was going to premiere at the beginning of a fall season. And now the idea of keeping up is just ludicrous. Um, and a lot of the stuff that's being produced right now is meant to feed the streaming beast. Um, it's just about churning out a lot of episodes and a lot of it is just not very good. Um, you know, I was writing and, I think that, you know, we've seen this in the culture around television in particular as well, where there is so much churn that there is very, there are very few things that produce a sort of extended ongoing conversation. Um, you know, you'll, if you look at Google trend searches for streaming shows versus some of the HBO classics or even, you know, FX shows that were popular, you'll see sharp spikes and then the uh, interest falls off again almost immediately, which means that the streamers have to, or at least the streamers that are releasing things in sort of binge watching models 
have to just churn out the next thing immediately. And, you know, I, I was writing a column about this phenomenon, the extent to which, you know, it was kind of a lonelier way to watch things. And the viewing environment has become very fragmented. And I asked Alan Suppenwall, who's the TV critic for, Alan, for Rolling Stone, you know, if I was wrong that the conversation had disappeared. And he said, yeah, and to a certain extent, it's about streaming. But to a certain extent, stuff just isn't good as anymore, which is not to say there aren't good, interesting things being produced. But I'm not sure that the volume model has been, you know, a huge creative boon for pop culture. Yeah. And I would really, I would not mind if stuff consolidated a little bit. And even, you know, even absent the question of an IATSE deal, I am not sure that this level of production is actually sustainable. Um, you know, I, I think there are there has been this boom in streaming outlets because everyone wants to be in on that business. But I think the number of those outlets that are actually going to make it is definitely going to consolidate. I think probably think we will see some cable channels fail um, or at least contract or, you know, go back to a model where Consolidate. they're Consolidate, yeah. Yeah, or go back to a model where they're running infinite Law & Order reruns rather than trying to program a full slate of programming. And so, you know, I actually should get in while the getting is good in part because I think that whatever they do – I do think we're going to see a contraction. There's just too much of this stuff. Not enough of it is good. Not enough of it is finding an audience. Yeah. I mean, I, there, th this is the thing, Peter, is that there is kind of a double-edged sword here for for the folks at IATSE. I understand. I totally understand wanting better working conditions. Uh, you know, I've been on a handful of movie sets over the years, and, like, they work long-ass hours. They are, they are you know, driving home at, like, 3 in the morning sometimes, like, in, in situations that they, you know, they, they would say, and I would tend to agree, is not safe just in terms of, like, falling asleep at the wheel. Um, but also, I mean, if you if you – reduce the if you reduce the number of hours that's going to lead to longer production days uh, in terms of number of days uh, which will lead to fewer productions overall which means fewer jobs overall i mean it just like there will be fewer jobs for for people who are working in the industry right yeah i think that's exactly right F fewer productions just means fewer jobs period and the people who i mean the, the people who are least well paid in many cases are these kind of below the line um uh, craftsmen who are are uh, who work incredibly hard um, are are quite talented, uh, and they need they need a lot of work, right? Like they they make their money off of volume in in a lot of ways, um, and that will if you if you reduce the number of productions, uh, that is going to reduce the number of hours there are to get paid, uh, and so that is going to um, it that will affect the members of of this union in some way, um, uh, you know. And look, like like you said. I get it in a lot of ways. The long hours they work are very hard, very arduous. Um, I don't want to understate uh, what it's like to work on those sets in those sorts of jobs in particular. Uh, but you also have to think about this a little bit from the producer and sort of director and kind of top of the line talent um, perspective, which is that they have extremely narrow windows to make these things, even productions that have generous shooting schedules are really they're done in ways, you know, on pretty tight schedules um, because it's so expensive to get all of those people, not just the highly paid talent, but a lot of the sort of the the mid priced people, right? The grips making, you know, 15 or 20 or 25 dollars an hour in some cases. Right. And you get them on on set for 10 or 14 hours. And it's just incredibly expensive to have all those people in the room at the same time. 
time and you're there, you're the director or you're the actor and you want time to make creative decisions. And so you just have to have people, you, you know, the, the way that that ends up working out is that um, in order for time to for creative decisions to be made is that people who uh, people who are doing the hard work, you know, sort of the below the line labor end up being there and needing to be there in some cases for very long periods of time. The other thing, though, that I actually want to that I want to sort of throw back to Alyssa a little bit. It's not just that fewer productions means fewer jobs. It's that if you end up with fewer productions and consolidation, it means that the pieces, the things that are going to be cut from the production schedules are the niche targeted programs. Um, the, the kind of the shows that are the shows and movies that are risky. Uh, and in some cases, that's going to mean the sort of arty stuff that, that we all like, that we find really interesting, but is just not an obvious sell. And in many other cases, that's going to mean productions that check a lot of diversity boxes, right, that are made by and for people who are not guaranteed sale audiences, right? And so uh, I, I think that you would probably end up with, if you, if you had fewer productions, you would end up with a world in which the people who are most likely to get work are the people who already have strong records of selling to big audiences. And those aren't new faces. That's not new talent. That is, that's the people who've already been doing it for a long time. So, so a smaller production slate empowers the, the, the people who are already successful and powerful and consolidation ends up meaning, ends up meaning that you had that, that companies that are, that are successful or somewhat successful or continuing to do business, they end up moving towards something like the Disney model where they, Disney simply produces stuff that they have a really, really, really good idea is going to work. And they don't produce a whole lot of stuff. Yes, there's the Disney plus streaming boom and whatever, but like they're basically just focused on churning out the same thing over and over again, because that when you're when you're trying to limit what you do, that's all you do is things you know will work rather than risky stuff that you don't know if it's going to actually you know earn out. I agree, and I feel kind of dismal about it, even as I think it's sort of inevitable. Look, I mean, I wrote a series of pieces at the sort of at the beginning of this content boom, and as the streamers were becoming a bigger deal, arguing essentially that the nicheification of television in particular, um, and, you know, movies to a lesser extent through streaming, was going to solve the culture wars because everyone would have something that they liked. It would feel less like pop culture was a trade-off between, you know, cop shows and master of none. And that is just one of the wrongest things I've ever written, right? I... <laughs> I really wanted to believe that. And I found it kind of heartbreaking in the extent to which conversations about culture have gotten in a lot of ways stupider and more Man, antagonistic. I, I'm sorry, the culture war didn't didn't end? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Here's, um, but, can we but also, I mean, sorry, just one last yeah, thought, yeah. Sonny. Like, you know, the stuff that is more diverse and interesting has not necessarily developed, you know, the kind of base and financial support stuff that I might have hoped from that experiment. Um, and it's kind of depressing. Um, I, you know, when I talk about consolidation, you know, from a pure logistical schedule you know, standpoint, it would be good for me to have slightly less stuff to wade through. Um, from a, I want media to be more interesting. The fact that I feel like this is inevitable is actually really heartbreaking and has been kind of devastating to my personal intellectual project. And 
That's hard. Hey, all right, bummer. Uh, one one <laughs> angle. One one. one Sonny's excited that everybody's depressed. One avenue of the culture war uh, that we haven't really talked about here that I have no pity for whatsoever are are the the fanboys uh, who heard news of the IATSE, the possible <gasps> IATSE work stoppage, and were like, "Wait, hold on." If they go on strike so they don't have to work 16-hour days, does that mean I'm not going to get my my comic book movies? Am I not going to get my Doctor Strange 2? And my and I was just like, you people are the worst in the world. Like, I don't even, I don't even, like, it's, I like Marvel movies. I like to see big budget action adventure films. I like to go to them and, and uh, talk about them with you guys. Um, but if your first thought, if your first thought on this is, uh, I'm going to not be able to see my uh, post-credits stinger uh, for Eternal Six, the Light of Galactus, or whatever the hell is going on out there. I like I. You are you are the enemy of uh, of everything to me. I just I cannot stand these. Am I raw? Am I overreacting here, yes. Peter? Am no, I? No. Am I? People, people should die at the wheel and get urinary tract infections so you can have your uh, because they're not allowed bathroom breaks so you can no. have your goodies clearly just ugh just Sonny go. why are you why are you challenging me with that well I why you is are that? the heartless capitalist I assume you want them with the urinary tract infections and the uh you know the the tri they have to take the speed so they can drive home and then the downer so they can sleep for two hours and then the speed so they can drive home again right that's uh, like you've the got libertarian it, Sonny, ideal you have absolutely figured out libertarianism <laughs> I nailed it's, it I just I have no no more succinct description of what libertarianism <laughs> is has ever existed excellent uh, no I mean look I I, I think I, these are these are private sector unions and in theory right all else being equal um like people can band together to negotiate for their for their labor for their labor that's not like that's not something that i oppose um i you know i have uh, some issues with the sort of the, some of the legal regimes around how unions um are are governed but that's different than the idea that people in the private sector can like be like, I'm going to only work with these people and we're all going to like negotiate together. I meant uh, more because you want your, your post-credit stingers. That's I, this wasn't a libertarianism. Look, I'm just looking question. out this for I'm just looking out for Alyssa here because if these guys go on strike, it might be a long time before we see that She-Hulk TV series. Good point. Good point. You know, <laughs> my solidarity with the working class uh, represented by IATSE overcomes my idea, uh, overcomes my desire for a She-Hulk TV show. That's fair. Uh, all right, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that IATSE uh, could uh, shut down all of Hollywood for a month or two uh, while they while they sort this out? Uh, Alyssa? Uh, it's a controversy and solidarity forever. Uh, Peter? It's a controversy. Uh, I think it's a controversy, uh, though this is the most sympathetic I've been to a Hollywood union in a very, very long time. Uh, and I, I say this as somebody who is, as the uh, heartless right winger of this group, is generally not super sympathetic to unions. But I like the 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 the, the working conditions uh, and the and the uh, the pay issue with the streamers. Like Netflix is not the hero of any story, especially not this one. Um, if you enjoy the show. And who doesn't? It's great. We work 16 hours out of whack to make this, uh, you know, just perfect for you guys. Uh, make sure we to did. head over we to— We did come in on, on the weekend this time. 
This, this is true. We're working on a Sunday to tape this, so you're going to peek behind the curtains. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebullwork.com where we're going to talk about a special, uh, very important topic on our bonus episode. Which Bond is best? Speaking of Bond, uh, on to the main event, No Time to Die. This is Daniel Craig's final adventure as James Bond. We'll get to spoilers in a minute, but this is definitely the final Daniel Craig James Bond. Um, uh, in this uh, conclusion to the quintet of films he has made, uh, things as things get started, he is trying to celebrate his new life with his love, Madeline, played by Leah Sadu, uh, and uh, gets blown up for his efforts, and thus starts a big adventure trying to figure out what's going on with Spectre and tying everything together. Uh, again, we'll get to spoilers in a minute, but I have one big problem with this movie, and that is that I have no idea what Rami Malek's Safin, why he wants to kill millions of people. So in, in as the movie starts, uh, he, is, uh, he is essentially trying to wipe out Spectre for his own reasons. Good for him. Everybody hates Spectre. And there's a whole like flip sides of the flip side of the same coin with 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 James Bond. Who's actually the hero here? What what methods work? That's all kind of interesting. And then for no reason whatsoever, in the last hour of the movie, it's it's Mal, Rami Malek Safin is trying to kill like a million people, like billions of people. He's just trying to wipe out everyone. There's no line of dialogue anywhere in the film that explains any of this. I'm very confused. I'm very, very confused. Uh, there was early rumblings that he was an environmentalist, and that was he was like kind of a typical Malthusian, wanted to to you know reduce the population of the world. But that's nowhere in this film. And part of me wonders if they may have cut that. Because some some jerk is out there talking about how environmentalists are good villains all the time. I don't know. Maybe it's possible. Um, uh, so anyway, that's that's a problem with the movie. Uh, and as as for the series as a whole, it's kind of at war with itself. The first two movies uh, in the series, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, were very much almost anti-Bond James Bond films. They were making fun of things like Money Penny. They were making uh, they were making fun of the the whole shaken not stirred thing. They were used for like punchlines. Um, and then in the the last three movies, all of these things come back with a vengeance. There is an actual Money Penny character. There is a there's Q. There's cars with ejector seats and all that sort of stuff. Funny gadgets, crazy crazy wild adventures. Um, and I there are vodka I, martinis. And there are, there are vodka martinis shaken, not stirred. I, like it it all it it goes back to the roots of the the series, which again I like. I don't mind because I don't. It's not like I hate James Bond or anything, but it feels like it feels like a rejection of what they were doing for the first two movies of this series. Again, the the whole thing feels kind of at war with itself. Here are some things I really liked about this movie. Number one, first and foremost, is Anna de Armas. Her like twenty five minute. Uh, interlude in Cuba with Daniel Craig as they are having like kind of a crazy adventure where they're uh, you know embedded into a specter party and then uh, things go sideways was delightful. I find Anna Darmus exceptionally uh, amusing, especially in her um, enthusiastic mode. Shall we say she she has she's like all wide eyes and like uh, like puppy dog energy. It's very it's very endearing. I love. I love her in this. Uh, I love her in most things, frankly. Um, and I love Angry Bond. I love Daniel Craig uh, looking like he wants to put his fist all the way through people when he is fighting them. Like he is like the angriest I've ever seen a person on screen when he is in a fist fight. Um, and what's interesting about this series of movies is that they feel like we, we, we just spent a bunch of time talking about prestige TV. But these movies feel like a reflection of prestige TV in the way that earlier films in the series 
felt like a reflection of the Cold War or the post-Cold War era, right? Like, it's it's a weird, it's a weird thing to think of these movies less as uh, products of international intrigue and more of like, well, what's going on with the state of the industry? Um, as such, there were two possible endings for these for this set of films. The first was James Bond riding off into the sunset with his girl, which is basically how Spectre ends. That's the literal end of Spectre. He's riding off into the sunset. He's going to get married and have have a fun life and whatever. Um, and then there's James Bond engaging in spoilers. Again, so if you haven't seen it, you want to go see it, go see it. But uh, uh, the other way to end this series is to have James Bond engaging in a noble sacrifice to save the world and his loved ones, which is what happens at the end of No Time to to die. Um, I prefer this, frankly. I thought this ending was wonderful. Um, uh, I, I, It's the sort of ending that only really works, though, because they have done something in this movie that they've never done in another James Bond film, which is give him a kid. It gives him a reason beyond mere duty to make the ultimate sacrifice and feels more powerful as a result. Uh, so I liked this a lot. I, I am... I, I feel like this is a mildly controversial opinion. People seem very mixed on it. Um, but it all worked for me, honestly. Uh, Peter, what did you make both of this film and the way it kind of wrapped up Daniel Craig's Bond in general? So I liked this movie quite a bit. I didn't quite love it. I think it has some issues in particular with the villains, uh, like you said. Um, I'll, I'll start with uh, what I liked. It just looks great. Unlike so many of the blockbusters that we have watched uh, over the last year, uh, in particular this summer, which just sort of have this pixelated, animated feel to them. They don't feel real in any sense, and they're not even necessarily supposed to. Uh, this movie just sort of has a, a great physicality to it. Of course, part of that is, is Daniel Craig himself, but just the, the craft work, the design, the production design on this movie, it looks and feels really great. And so it's just a pleasure to, to watch and to look at. The action scenes are really crackling. I mean, there's a number of just excellent set pieces where you, that you could watch almost without the context of the rest of the movie. Uh, the 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 bit at the end of the second act in particular, uh, you know, where he's sort of moving through the woods and everything's kind of, you know, got that greenish, uh, um, uh, foggy tint to it. It's just so perfectly moody. And the, and the movie has a bunch of scenes like that that just really work. And so visually, it's just it's just a delight and one of the better blockbusters I've seen from a visual craft perspective recently. Um, I think this movie does have these villain issues that you were talking about. I also had no idea what Rami Malek's plan was or why he wanted to kill people. Um, I suspect that there was some last-minute editing. Uh, you know, uh, director Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who uh, co-wrote this movie, has said that they were literally still writing the screenplay while they were doing the edit on it and that they had him, that during the production, they had people shoot lines that were designed to pay off for multiple different possible endings because they didn't know how the movie was going to end. And so they would say, hey, Ray Fiennes, say this sort of foreboding thing that doesn't actually mean anything. We'll figure out how it fits into the movie later. And Ray Fiennes would be like, OK, whatever. And then he'd be like, this is the most important decision of your life, Bond. And they'd, they'd like work it in somehow. Uh, so I, I do think that there's like some muddledness there. And, and it's not just that Rami Malek doesn't have a plan. It's that the movie doesn't actually want to commit to Rami Malek's villain. What it wants is for all of Bond's signatures 
to be the bad guys here in some sense, or at least to be the antagonists in this film, because this is a movie that is a, a, a kind of a, a reckoning about with Bond's legacy, right? And so MI6 and Bond's women and Bond's harsh, you know, to his uh, ways and his violence are the subject of this movie. And, and so I think it was in some ways a mistake to have the Rami Malek character, who's a very traditionalist Bond villain, you know, with a layer and a plot to kill everybody at the very end and like a weird face and a mask and whatever and, and all these poison like kind of, island right? yes poison all of these poison like, island. all of these kind of uh, you know throwback bond ticks in a movie that at its best is about bond facing off against himself and all of the bad shit that he has done throughout his life and then is kind of punished for it because well, what can it, what is the ultimate punishment for a serial misogynist womanizer it's that he does find love late in his life and then he is separated from his woman forever uh, and has to die for the spy agency that that screwed something up that he has you know spent his life working for I, I would I would just like to to note that Rami Malek was born to play a disfigured, insane Bond villain. It's I, like and his, I, yeah. his whole look is like, OK, yeah, no, this all ma- he makes sense now. To me. His, his place in the, the universe makes sense. A, he he visu- he looks cool and he makes the most of a completely underwritten role. But I don't think the role as written makes any sense. Makes no sense. It makes I, well, no. I, I I disagree. Well, uh, Alyssa, let's let's talk about this a little bit because I want to get your take on this. I I I find the first part of Safin's story to make a lot of sense. He wants to get rid of Spectre. Boom, makes sense. Why is he trying to kill the world in the second part? Explain this to me. Somebody explain this to me. I have no idea. <laughs> I I'm sorry. I have no idea at all. Because it's, Thanos. I mean, <laughs> I mean because it's because they need. MI6's decision to develop this weapon to turn out to have been really bad and dangerous and misguided because in addition to this being a five movies, uh, sort of a five movie series that's focused on Bond himself, it's a five movie series about the corruption and decline of the British Empire as represented by its intelligence services. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, there's Rami Malek has no reason to want to kill the world. I'm sorry. I, I have nothing for you there. Okay. Okay. Well, what did you make of the movie overall? What was your what was your general take on it? It's interesting. I mean, I think like both of you, it, you know, I agree that it has a huge villain problem. It is interesting the extent to which both like, you know, Lucifer, whatever his name is, is um the his Russian. island, the um, and the idea of Von having a kid are very borrowed from um you only live twice. Um, I don't know if either of you have read any of the Fleming novels, but um, that one also involves Bond literally having like a showdown with a villain at a poison island, getting amnesia and ending up like living in, I think, a Japanese fishing village and having no idea who he is and having like knocked up a local village mm. lady who sort of sure. hopes that he's going to stick around when obviously he's not. But um, I, I thought this was absent... I mean, excusing that major problem with the movie, I thought this was quite an effective end to the, you know, sort of argument that these movies are making effectively. Quantum of Solace is kind of an outlier here because it doesn't really um, play with the ideas about the state of the empire as much. But, you know, in Casino Royale, Bond is getting accredited to serve in this institution in Skyfall, it, you know, it's clearly vulnerable. In Spectre, it's capable of manipulation. And then in No Time to Die, 
you know, the institution is making world-threatening mistakes and Bond dies both to, you know, sort of cut that off and cover them up. And it, you know, it's a heroic death, but it's also a tragic and a stupid one, right? It's, you know, he is killed because his bosses made a terrible, short-sighted, incredibly dangerous decision. And there is something that is sort of low-key about the way that M and his colleagues send him off at the end. It's like, well, it's back to work. Um, and you're left thinking, well, is that so, is that so good? Like, how is that going to work out for anybody? Is this, is this worth work worth doing? Um, and I thought it worked quite well in that regard. I realize we haven't talked about, um, Lashana Lynch's 007 at all. Um, and while Anna de Armas is totally delightful in this and a, specifically a totally delightful, riff on the sort of wide-eyed Bond girl in a way. I mean, her sort of playing the dance, like, I've had three weeks training. <laughs> and yeah. then, in fact, proving to be, like, incredibly competent um, is a lot of fun. But I also thought Lynch was a really interesting presence in this movie, in part because they give her and sort of let her express some of the same kind of masculinity and edge that um, Craig himself does as Bond, right? I mean, she is not styled, you know, when we see her in that scene in Jamaica, Cuba, I forget exactly when it is that she shows up, you know, she's sort of dressed up, she, like she's in a crop top, she has long, you know, she has a wig that makes it look like she has long hair. But then once she's back in her own clothes, um, you know, she's very covered up. They are giving her strong sort of 80s referential shoulder pads. And she's, you know, she is herself, you know, strong and muscular. Um, you know, they have her flying the experimental plane with Bond. They give her sort of sharp sunglasses. Um, and I thought it was an interesting, you know, it's an, it's an interesting performance in part because the way she's written is she's kind of needling Bond about the fact that it must bother her that she's 007. You know, it's, they actually have her, you know, like kill off this treacherous scientist who she's been trying to extract and bring in, but she just like, she goes off the edge after he finally tr tries to goad her by being racist. Um, and it's not overboard on the, you know, this is what a black female Bond would be like. But it's an interesting enough performance that though I am very skeptical of the idea that making Bond either black or a woman would be much of a genuine blow for equality in Hollywood, that I would be specifically interested to see a movie with her as 007, um, if not her as like James Bond per se. Um, I, mean, I thought she was very good. Yeah, I, I, she's very interesting and in some ways I think underused in the, in the yeah. film. Not that she's not there and not that the, the bits with her don't work. But, you know, this is what I was saying about the, the movie's villain problem. It's not just that Rami Malek doesn't have a plan. It's that the movie is just not all that interested in the traditional villain with a big plan. They're much The movie is at its best interested in making Bond face off against against what you sort of uh, uh, the way the world has changed around him. Right. And she is in one of the, the clearest and uh, most marked symbols of that. And in some ways, this is. You know, this is the producers and the, the filmmakers responding to these years and years of calls for a, a James Bond who isn't, you know, a middle-aged white guy. 
And it's really interesting because I think we got something that is better than that, at least for now, which is that we got to see how Bond himself would react to a Bond type, another 007. I mean, she literally inherits his his uh, yeah. his, his signifier. And to me, that's that's actually a more interesting movie and a more interesting way to to address the critics of, oh, it's just white guy Bond. Uh, and I, I think it, it really works. And it's one of the best ideas well, in the film. Yeah, what, what's what's really interesting about it to me is that Bond doesn't care. Yeah, Bond Bond does not care that she's a black woman who is 007, which I thought was I. Th- it's funny this weekend I happened to watch The Enforcer, which is one of the Dirty Harry movies. It's the Dirty Harry. It's the third Dirty Harry movie, uh, and he gets a he gets a lady cop partner, and the whole movie is like Dirty Harry being like, "Ugh, a lady cop partner. Uh, you know, oh, she's she's a woman. She's not she's not fast enough or strong enough or it's whatever." Like the first episode and of it, What If. Kind of, kind of. And and by the by the end of it, there's this moment where, like, the filmmakers have a choice. They can either have the lady cop save the day or they can have her killed, be, essentially, because she's an incompetent woman. And they kill her because she's an incompetent woman. Yeah. It was It's, like, actually kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually, it's a very interesting look into a very different time. Um, 70s, but, like, man. what's, but what's, 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 what's really interesting about the uh, Bond uh, in No Time to Die is that he just does not care. He's just like, ah, whatever. You're, you're, you're a lady. I don't, like, you're, you're trying to goad me into a reaction here and I'm not going to give it to you because I don't I don't give a damn. But it's also an interesting sort of way of express, expressing bond this bond's sophistication, right? That he is not bothered by that at all and also just to a certain extent his contempt and alienation from the agency. But yeah, I mean, look, I wrote a column about this I think 5 years ago before Daniel Craig um you know recent remarks about whether there should be a female bond or whatever. And the thing is James Bond is an exploration of white British masculinity of a certain class, right? Like that's literally what the character is. Um, And it's something that this franchise has managed extremely well. You have that sort of initial um, meeting between Bond and Vesper Lind on the train in Casino Royale where she sort of picks up on some cues about his education, but also his class relationship to the educational environment that he came up in. You have it again in Skyfall when you see, you know, see him in the context of this sort of moldering British estate with Kincaid, the, you know, the gamekeeper. Um, and so, you know, you can tell a story about what it means to be black and British. That's really interesting. And in fact, Steve McQueen did that in his small act series of films this summer. You can tell really interesting stories about what it means to be female and British. Um and that's to a certain extent what The Crown has been doing lately. But those are not James Bond stories. And it is totally okay to have stories that are about this you know, particular state of being. And I think actually what I find quite compelling about Daniel Craig's run as James Bond is how much they've sort of leaned into that idea and made it explicit and played with it and you know, looked at some of the tension between modernity and, you know, and the tradition that this is part of between, you know, what adapts well about Bond's brand of masculinity, what doesn't, et cetera. Um, You know, Peter and I were talking about um, uh, Javier Bardem's performance in Skyfall. And, you know, it's interesting that you have a series of villains, you know, Le Chiffre, you you have this sort of uh, focus on like sexually annihilating torture in um, Skyfall, you have a 
gay or at least sort of bisexual villain kind of coming on to Bond and the implication that maybe Bond has been there before. You have the sort of clearer um, uh, explanation in this movie that Q is gay. You have a you know more masculinized female character in the um, in the form of Lashana Lynch's character, and so the you know the franchise has handled that deftly without letting it take over the movies and. I have just found them more intellectually engaging than pretty much any other blockbuster, you know, franchise that has been running contemporaneously. Um, it is it is a really nice set of movies um, in illustrating just how you can make a smart popcorn film um, that doesn't, you know, where those ingredients don't upset or offset each other. Um at all. I just think it's really nicely done. I, I, I agree, though I think the trade-off with this series is that the lore doesn't entirely sort of uh, hold together. This series, I, I think Sonny is is not totally wrong to say that this series started off as a deconstruction of Bond, went two films in and was like, wait, let's bring back some of the, the signatures. Uh, right. There's not there is some continuity here. Right. I mean, in, in particular, this film, I think, is the, the most continuity heavy Bond film probably ever. Uh uh, you know, in that it looks back uh, at, from the beginning to Casino Royale and then also picks up directly after Spectre left off. Uh, but the the, the trade off here in, in making films that are a little more, I think, as you said, intellectually and culturally engaged is that they th there's there's a lack of consistency. And uh, some of these movies are definitely better than others. You know, in Quantum of Solace, I think, is is really quite a weak film in a lot of ways, although I've softened on it a little bit since it came out. But it's it's, it's not a good. great movie. Yeah. Well, the problem with the Quantum of Solace is that it's a hundred minute epilogue to Casino Royale. It's just like tying up a bunch of loose ends. And that movie already had like a 20 minute epilogue. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very unnecessary and weird movie, um, frankly. Uh, all right. So what do we think uh, on No Time to Die? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Three thumbs up. Everybody should go see it. Um, all right. That is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on which bond is best. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys again next week. Bye.